Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. This is the podcast for people who enjoy conversations about the Punisher, but don't think that the Punisher's skull logo belongs on cop cars. That's right, we're back to discuss Season 2 of Marvel's Netflix hit yet canceled show, The Punisher. Uh, And I have two amazing guests joining me this evening. Uh, The first is a new guest whose podcast I'm an enormous fan of. I am joined by... Jay Edidin, who writes comics, short fiction, and narrative nonfiction, covers culture, arts, science, and gender for venues such as Wired, Sci-Fi, Mail Magazine, and BuzzFeed, edits comics, transmedia, and genre fiction, and is the marginally internet famous as half of the podcast Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which is how I first encountered his work, and I freaking love that podcast. It's the best thing ever. Uh, Getting back to the written bio, as opposed to my editorial note, um, Jay was named comicbooks.com's 2017 Comics Person of the Year for his investigative coverage of harassment issues at DC Comics and his work to foster diversity and inclusion in comics culture. Good evening, Jay. Uh, Good evening, Alana, and thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And returning is return guest T. Fugner. T. is the editorial director for comics at King Feature Syndicate. When she's not reading comics for work, she's reading comics for fun, drawing comics, dressing up as comic book characters, or watching comic adaptations on television, much like this one. Um, I almost didn't watch season one of Punisher, but T and uh, my guest, who I had to talk about season one, Shanti Collins, both vouched for it hard. And so I did watch it, and I'm really glad I did, because I straight up loved season one. Season two is a different question. Um, I... I obviously was really excited for it, um, and I wanted to open our episode uh, for in case there's people who haven't watched it yet or haven't watched the whole thing through. I wanted to give us a give folks a brief spoiler-free analysis of whether folks should watch it, because uh, we know that season two has really not always historically been good for Marvel Netflix series. In fact, I regret every minute that I watched Jessica Jones season two because it was that bad. Um, so here's my quick spoiler-free take on the value of the season. Uh, you know, I think season one was a serious meditation on guilt, violence, masculinity, the U.S. government's complicity, and all the above. And season two is a beat-em-up with some excellent acting and a few amazing sequences. So the answer is maybe. I, it ultimately was a letdown for me because I was expecting something much more intellectually challenging and complex. Um, but I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. Mostly, I I did spend my last moments watching the show. Uh, at the very the very last minute of the show was a sequence that I basically just watched screaming at my television in frustration, and I literally scared my cat. Um, but there were lots of things I did enjoy, and I think there's like really good meaty things to discuss in the series, even though it did end in me screaming in frustration. Uh, what do you think, Jay? I think, oh, as far as whether to watch it, if you enjoyed season one primarily for its deconstruction and examination of trauma, of toxic masculinity, of tropes around violence, of the ethics of war, you're probably not going to like season two nearly as much. If you enjoyed season one mostly for the gun stuff, you'll have a great time. Very helpful. And T, what about you? Yeah, I, I like like both Alana and Jay, I didn't like season two nearly as much as I liked season one. Um, I do feel like if you really like watching Curtis and Brett Mahoney look like they're gonna, you know, um, shake their head one more time and walk into another dimension just to get away from all this nonsense, <laughs> um, then you will super enjoy this season. Um 
Yeah, I, I think, like Alana said, there's a few really good sequences in it, but it, for the most part, it just doesn't live up to the first season. Yeah, it does cement the fact that the look of just... The, the evolving look of disbelief and resignation on Brett Mahoney's face is the true hero of the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. One of my bullet points under themes to discuss is Curtis deserves better. So with that in mind, uh, oh, yeah. thus ends the spoiler... Well, overall... Um, uh, thus ends the spoiler-free section of the show, and from here on out, there will be spoilers. So make your decision to join us or not. Um, I, I definitely think that there was a lot of very genre-savvy stuff happening, also that I think as comics readers, we're going to find ourselves required to discuss. Um, but uh, to just sort of jump into it, um, geez, I, I wanted... What, what, the cliffhangers of sorts that I left at the end of season one, really dying to know about what the show would handle, frankly, was Billy's face. I wasn't <laughs> yeah. sure if they were yeah. going to go the route of, because it's really, tr mm. having someone with facial scarring due to violence, who's also a bad guy, is a complex thing. There's a, a lot of media that acts like physical deformity is, is a revelation of your soul and that you're evil. Yeah. And it's a trope that's just messed up as hell and is all over popular culture um and i was not sure how the show was going to go in that direction and there was this teaser trailer where we saw basically like billy like in a studio uh monologue with a monologue and we saw the facial scars and they were not that bad and so i watched yeah. that saying oh that's not what he's going to look like they just didn't want to like go too heavy into it but no actually his scars uh, mean that he just looks like a really handsome guy with more scars, which I get like nobody wants yeah. trauma inflicted on their body, but I couldn't decide if I thought that making him still be handsome was a cop-out or if it was the right way to handle the um, whole trope, the fucked up trope of like people being made ugly is because they're evil. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, and I don't know if other folks have thoughts, but that was like one of the big things I had bated breath over over the beginning of the season is how would they be handling that? I mean, I think a lot of Billy's thing in season one and a lot of what Frank is threatening and challenging when he puts him through the window at the end of the season. Sorry, that was a spoiler. Um, no, but it's not. <laughs> okay, right? then, We're in the spoiler section. It's then good. I rescind my apology. But um, <laughs> so is it is less his vanity than his sense of being untouchable. So mm, it's yeah. not that Billy is ugly and it's not that he's noticeable in with the scars. It's that he's visibly vulnerable. He's been, he's clearly been damaged. Someone got to him in ways that left permanent marks that he can't easily hide the way he can with, with, for example, you know, the, the damage to his arm from his childhood. That's great. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, it's definitely sort of the Tyrion Lannister school of cosmetic surgery here. Oh, yeah. Where it, there is that frustration that you're never going to get. It's not even a question of being ugly. It's a question of you're never going to get actors with scars that look like the person who is bearing them might actually feel like they're grotesque. Yeah, um, or that it, it, it's the scar equivalent of... Oh, it's the scar equivalent of the unpopular, quote-unquote, ugly girl from 90s movies about yes. high school. Yeah, mm. and when you take mm. off her glasses and, like, put a little mascara on her, oh my gosh, she's beautiful, and the boy notices her now, um, you know, except except it's Jigsaw. 
Yeah. <laughs> this this actually connects to one of the things that consistently creeps me out badly about the MCU and especially the TV MCU, which is the mm-hmm. disproportion of injuries to their physical or or practical results, which I get it's comics, it's superheroes, and I can absolutely get past that in a drawn medium, but when it's with real, real actors, I find that gap really disconcerting. The gap between... The gap between just the physical trauma that people go through and the mm. extent to which it affects their appearances, you know, visible marks, and also, you know, their ability to continue running, jumping, leaping off things, not being dead. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of moments, in, especially in the last episodes, where you're not sure if someone is going to make it. And, and then yeah. they actually kind of all do. Um, I, I will say one thing that, uh, and I, I, I know I know we will come back to, to Billy, but I, I want to make sure we talk about a big new thing introduced this season, which is straight out of not Punisher comics that I'm aware of, but certainly Marvel comics, which is the introduction of the teenage sidekick, who is Amy. Um, I just kept thinking like, oh, this is Wolverine. They're totally stealing Wolverine's shtick where like the grizzled old killer gets the young woman who's trying to, like a teenage girl really, who's like trying to learn how to survive and she has a complex relationship with him and it's really great that it's not creepy. Um, And it felt, that felt like a a very traditional Marvel Comics beat. And I, I think a lot of times it can be hard for adults watching teens played by teens on tv mm-hmm. um they can kind of read wrong to us or they're either too old or they're very young and therefore irritating and i think they did a good job with amy um i don't know what did th- what do folks think about the introduction of the character so i i feel like for me um i agree with you there were definitely a couple moments where it felt very wolverine to me but and I really liked the character. Um, I like. I also liked sort of Amy's own growth over the course of the story. But, uh, and, and, and frankly, and then there's the conversation where she's in the car with John. Um, mm. That she's the one who is actually able to say those things to him after everything that happens over the course of the series. I think... It's just this really good moment of this young person who understands what's going on far better than the people around her. Yeah. Um, but I also felt like she kind of got edged out of the story a few times where they kind of lost her thread. And it was kind of disappointing that she didn't, um, it, you know, that she was really only there when it felt like it was convenient to the narrative to have her as part of the narrative. And then they would, like, bump her out for a while, and that sort of frustrated me. I also really wish that they'd chosen a different name for her to be using at the beginning of the season, because while I know there's not going to be a season three and this is the end, that does permanently burn one of Frank's, I think, better partners from the comics for the MCU, which is a character whose last name I can't remember, but whose first name is is Rachel and who's, who's likewise an ex-Marine. And much, oh, yeah. much, and, and kind of Frank's, Frank's, I don't know, journeyman murderer? Not quite apprentice, um, but closer, closer to a peer than, than Amy is. Oh, interesting. I, I, you know, that car scene, which was so excellent. I, 
I, I also was thinking about her in terms of the legacy of like hardcore survivor girl hostages, like the character from what is it, Commando? I she's also she's telling him the truth. She's telling John the yeah. truth, but she also is doing what you should do in a hostage situation, which is reminding your captor that you're a human being um, and trying to connect with them on an emotional level, which makes you harder for them to just kill. Um, so on the one hand, she's speaking truth, but she also is, I'm like, yes, this is the strategy. Like, be a real person. Show him that you're a person. Connect to him on a human level. This will help you survive. Um, yeah, I love, that, always turning. I love that she never stops thinking in those terms. She's never the completely innocent ingenue. She never stops. And she also never stops making bad choices, which is kind of great. Yes, because it's a good teenager. Yeah. I, I mean, I did at one point sort of get frustrated that for someone who's trying to be in hiding, it never occurred to her to cut her hair shorter and dye it. Because that hair is recognizable as hell and very easy to get rid of. Yeah, but, but you're, nevertheless... you're, you're 15. <laughs> you've spent that long growing it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I can I can see having having your priorities be that far off at that point. But like, what about your punk rock uh, makeover that she could be having? Yeah, I hear you. It's yeah. it's a different character. Yeah, if she did a punk rock makeover, Frank would just be like, "Take those things off and go back to your room, young lady." So, <laughs> <laughs> um, although actually, this is. <laughs> I, in the beginning of season two, it was the first time we've seen Frank be on his own and trying to do something that wasn't directly tied to addressing his cycle of vengeance or surviving being targeted by somebody. And I thought it was interesting that like what Frank chose to do in that situation was go on the road, end up in rural Michigan, um, have a not particularly flattering haircut because, you know, straight men make some bad choices. And like... I just, uh, I listened to this uh, somewhat, no, I mean, not that bad, like Shooter Jennings band, I guess, in a bar. Beth is wonderful. The woman, the bartender, yeah. I really yeah, liked Beth her. Beth was terrific. Like, that gave me real high hopes. And, um, like, to have that, to have her not be a throwaway character was really quite great. Um, but, uh, so, you know, like, that, but the sort of seeing, like, this is what, this is what, uh, Frank wants to go do now that he can do anything. It was sort of an interesting question. Does Frank really want to do anything? He seems no. like he's kind of doing the tumbleweed thing. And his Punisher sense is tingling as soon as there's any possibility that there's something he can get involved with. But it is to save and protect a, a, a vulnerable person. So, um, that was, so that was sort of a thought about the early season. But the, the, the other thing from early in the season that really struck me is that assault on Precinct 13 episode um, where there he's held up in that small town sheriff's office with Amy, you know, this yeah. is back yeah. when she's still in hostage mode and you see the Amway fortune family, basically that's, that's, that's who they are <laughs> uh, coming at them with all of their hired guns and expert trained hitmen, And it was, it was a, such a straight up tribute to assault on Precinct 13, which is, you know, a, John Carpenter movie I love um, and I thought they did a great job of that like it even had it had all the beats of like the people who are, are reluctant to fight and in certain ways the small town like pride like he's like I'm going to survive this myself um, and ultimately like any show like that it, it does end up being competence porn at a certain point but this is a Punisher show and you're going to kind of know that coming in did anybody else like that episode? 
So I haven't seen Assault on Precinct Thirteen, so I don't really Likewise. know the references oh. um, that you're that you're bringing up. Um, but yeah, no, I think one of the things that I really liked about the early episodes of this show were getting to take Frank out of the city. I mean, we mm. haven't gotten to see a lot of Marvel Netflix leave the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to see, you know, being able to see a completely different setting and, you know, and there's always like, I mean, obviously you have this like great, like folksy blues theme song to the show and actually getting into a place that feels like that kind of music, um, you know, getting into this place that feels a little bit more like the kind of place where people identify with someone like Frank Castle, yeah. Um, and seeing him actually as part of that world was cool. I Something that I think the show has done well consistently, and that season two does really beautifully at a lot of different points, and especially that episode, is building dread. Yes. And just, I again, I, I don't know to what extent what I'm complimenting is, in this case, derived from Precinct 13, because like T, I haven't seen it, but just the... I, I remember watching that episode and thinking, I don't really want to keep watching the rest of this episode. This is a really good episode, and it's good in ways that make me want to stop watching it. <laughs> well, the, I definitely had, like, absolute dread, heart racing, watching a number of episodes. They use, they, I mean, there's visual references to, like, Mike Myers in the Halloween movies. Um, there's, uh, there's like, near the end of the season, there's this tracking shot that's a, it's like a dolly shot where they're looking up at Madani when she's in, um, dr dumont's apartment oh yeah and that's like straight up classic horror movie filming and i was just literally panicked and heart racing very well executed in that bit yeah there's i i feel like there's a bunch of that too there's some of that with amy at the toward the end when you know after john gets the call where the where the amway people ask if they have her um that's um you know there's that you know there's a lot of like these kind of long extended sequences that wouldn't necessarily need to be as long as they are but they kind of like linger just long enough that you're like oh shit you know maybe the thing that i'm expecting to happen isn't what's going to happen hmm and yeah it's, it's a really good character note that i think because a lot of frank and a lot of frank as a character is just that he lives waiting for the other shoe to drop. No matter what the situation is, I mean, he's waiting for things to go bad and both dreading it and kind of anticipating it because that's the context and environment he knows how to handle. Oh, God, yeah. I I mean, I think, like, one of the... The the psychology of Frank here is sort of a continuing like cycle of like self-recrimation self-justification um and this is something you see in in you know both series and i guess i'm trying to have i'm having a bit of a harder time figuring out why it bothers me in this and i thought it was really smart in the last season um but there's this you know he has this conversation with madani where he's trying to pull her out of the cycle of violence and he says this shit never ends and it's like she's the one holding the Punisher vest in that moment and like holding it up, like offering it to him. 
Um, and she is the one who ends the series joining the CIA, which is like we 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 know from season one, some evil ass motherfuckers, also from U.S. history. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. Like, there's lots of conversations about justifying violence and who gets to decide when it can be used, how it can be used, and what's brought to bear. I thought some of the debates over that, like the the, the one that Krista and Dumont, Dr. Dumont and Dina, I'm sorry, and Dina Madani have, I, I can't decide what I think about it, but I think we should talk about it. So for me, I think that one of the biggest distinctions between the first season and the second season are that basically Frank is doing what he's doing for two reasons. There's the obvious reason of these people screwed with his family, but there's the secondary reason that's, um, you know, he's trying to help people like him. And Mm -hmm. it's specifically about um, these soldiers who've been taken advantage of and then finding out that one of his very close friends is one of the people who's taking advantage of them. And that stuff is, you know, that that stuff is straight out of one of the earliest Punisher comics. So um, there's a um, a Marvel Presents comics, and, and I haven't read a ton of Punisher, but there's a Marvel Presents, um, or Marvel's Preview Presents, or whatever one of those names is. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that's what, really the first story where you see Punisher as his own character without Spider-Man or somebody else in the story. And mm-hmm. it's very much the same story. It's he finds out that a friend of his from Vietnam has gotten sucked into this paid assassination scheme and and he wants to fix it. So there's, you know, so there it's a a personal thing and B it's dealing specifically with people who are you know very much like him and he understands why they've continued in this way even if it's not something that he's he agrees with and even if he wants mm-hmm. to try to change that for them um whereas in this one it's very much you know obviously billy's still right there in the story but he's very much inserting himself into someone else's story in a lot of yeah. ways and that's part of why for me, this was a little bit more troublesome than the first season because the first season was his story and it was a story about him and people like him and people he had connections to. Um, This was a story that he just sort of found his way into. Um, And yeah, he's doing it for presumably the right reasons. He's doing it to, like you said, protect somebody vulnerable, but it's still not his story. And one of the things that one of the things that the first season interrogated to some degree was, you know, who does the story belong to? Who gets to narrate that story? And then so then to turn that, you know, it's not even turning it on its head because it feels like it's more of a lack of awareness, a lack of awareness of that part of the story in the first in the first season um, to create craft a story that is more about Frank inserting himself into someone else's narrative. So can I say one of the things that was fascinating about what you just said is that what you described as Frank's motivation in and, and arc in season one is exactly Billy's motivation and arc in season two. And I hadn't really thought about yes. it, but the extent to which season two Billy is set up 
in parallel to season one, Frank, even to the point of amnesia, yeah, is really striking. There's a lot of mirroring, and I don't just mean throwing people's faces through mirrors <laughs> in season two. Um, I mean, some of the, of the mirroring I kind of resented in moments. Like, yeah. I think that the comparisons they were trying to draw between Madani and Dr. Dumont were oh, not yeah. actually no. fair. No. It's like, it's no. true. They are both women and they did both have sex with the same man, but they are not the same. Um, but, uh-huh. the, but, the, but the way it showed mirroring between John Pilgrim and Billy and Frank was really astute, I thought. Yeah, and and specifically that question of when somebody has been when somebody has been conditioned to believe that they're doing something for moral reasons when in fact that's not the case and how do you get out of that cycle of violence? And to what extent do they re- remain culpable for their actions right. under that mm. belief? T, you you also, you know, you said in season 1 they seem super aware and I think that feels like the difference between season 1 yeah. seasons 1 and 2 to me is that season 2 Like, season one feels like people saying, okay, we're going to take the things that people expect from a Punisher story and the tropes associated with the Punisher, and we're going to really examine and question and subvert them. And season two just feels like people took a, what do people expect to see in a Punisher story? All right, let's do that. Hmm. It just, it doesn't feel deliberate in the same way that season one does. And it doesn't feel self-aware in the ways that season one did. I, Billy does some interesting stuff mirroring himself actually in this like there's mm-hmm. the speech that he gives to his the veterans that he's turning into a criminal gang basically yeah. the, the, the team yeah. building speech he gives them is the same speech he gave at the anvil recruiting soldier oh, yeah. to, yep. at, at the anvil recruiting thing to recruit soldiers to be mercenaries it's like yeah. he has this thing and he's going to do it and he's going to use it to his own ends um and just like emptying out those that 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 bar and like showing how he's sort of building this uh, team of of people who have not been treated fairly and who are traumatized and trying to turn that resentment into a tool yeah. for financial gain, basically. But also the implication that he kind of believes a lot of it, because this is the guy mm-hmm. who still thought to an extent that his brotherhood with Frank would protect him from having killed from consequences of having killed frank's family in season one like he really believes in that in this in that stuff even as he's cynically exploiting it and it's it's a weird dichotomy yes i mean and the show has moments where it's asking you to think that Billy is genuinely conflict or you know before Billy finds out what actually happened um that he's supposed to be genuinely confused about what he could have done to frank and at other times, I was confused about what he was supposed to have known and what he was supposed to not have known. Yeah, I mean... And, and what Doc Dumont was supposed to have known and not have known. I, I had a hard time tracking that. It was 100% plot-convenient amnesia. Mm. Yeah, I, well, and I think it was sort of plot-convenient amnesia that was built in in order to create some of that mirroring. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you can't have you can't have Billy... Be like, how could my best friend do all of these horrible things to me if he knew exactly why his best friend had done all these horrible things to, me, to him? So, it yeah, so it feels like in order to create some of these parallels, they had to do this thing to the character that didn't necessarily always make sense. Well, TV amnesia rarely makes sense anyway, because in Billy's situation and with that, the fact yeah. that there's not... The fact that he doesn't have more severe issues in the ways that, that Frank clearly does it's kind of some nonsense and especially that recently after a 
traumatic brain injury with retrograde amnesia that severe he'd probably also have anterior grade amnesia and i should qualify here that i'm not a medical professional but i do a lot of weird research <laughs> wow no that makes sense and, and we should we should talk about the doctor then speaking yeah. of specious medical practice i oh my god uh, yeah. so which one <laughs> Point point taken. Um, the the my 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 girl Chris the Tuma Florida yeah. okay, has played yeah. with Floriana Lima, who is just devastating, and I love oh, her. Damn, yeah. uh, whose character is completely terrible, but also a yeah. pleasure to watch. Um, I telling you, I called it on this being a Joker and Harley parallel mm-hmm. very early. The second I saw they cast a gorgeous woman as his doctor, and she was being nice to him, I was like, oh motherfucker. Yeah, I think <laughs> we did as well. Joker. Yeah, I mean, like we know these tropes, right? Um, oh, yeah. and this, and I, I, I wish I hadn't known that there was an episode called, uh, one bad day before I saw the episode called oh, one Jesus. bad day, yeah. which you can't just call your episode one bad day. No, you really like, in your comics related TV show. So to clarify, one bad day is a, is it the name of a chapter even? In... No, it's a, it's a recurring motif in the killing yeah. joke. That, that the only thing yeah. separating the Joker from, say, Batman or Commissioner Gordon is one bad day. And so we're thinking that what the only thing separating us from Billy and what he's up to is one bad traumatic brain injury or no. maybe. No, because he was pretty terrible mm. before that. Yeah, he was just awful. Yeah. He, was argu- he was arguably worse before the traumatic brain injury. Yeah, no, I think that's actually true and a very good point. I mean, um, ironically, given the structure of this series, the person who had the really bad day turns out to be the better of the two of them, and that would be Frank. So, Frank, yeah. yeah. You know, um... Well, Frank is the one that they're clearly setting up yeah. for the one bad day for the one bad day parallel right. because he's the one who's set up to have been or turned into everything he fears becoming, which is the whole point of the one bad day idea. Yeah. Which does but but which doesn't exist in its complete form until a later episode. Like the whole like oh i actually his realization that he's bec- that he's become the show claims that he hasn't become but like let's be real he has become uh the thing he hates happens like two episodes away from then at least yeah. you know when yeah. he thinks he's accidentally shot the women um who were at valhalla I, but um well i mean i think one of the things i was going to say about the about the the shooting at valhalla is though is that he doesn't really become that and whether no. whether frank has become a thing he hates in general is another bigger question but he's basically it's people trying to project a situation that takes advantage of his deepest fears it's not actually him becoming that Mm -hmm. although at the same time it's something that he absolutely had the potential to become and it's a matter of pure luck that he hasn't and how easily he's able to shake it off when he finds out that it was a setup disturbs me somewhat yeah again again it's sort of plot convenient yeah um, I mean, the fact that he has this scene where he says that Maria, underst- Maria, his dead wife, yeah. understood who he was and that this is who he was even before what happened. Like, he says uh, that. He uh, makes that claim. And I was like, I, are you saying that in order to join a cycle of violence, it's because you already are intrinsically violent? Or are you saying that you're, you can't blame these things on just trauma? It's complicated. I feel like it's more like Frank was a suburban white dude who got in some bar fights and took himself too seriously. Well, I was going to say... Regarding Maria knowing who he was before this. I was going (laughs) to say that it was probably one of those things that, like, before this, he was the guy who, like, 
when his kids wanted a specific like brand of hot dog roll yeah he would go to like 23 stores until he found that hot dog roll and bang on the door at 901 when the store had closed at nine o'clock because damn it his kids wanted that specific hot dog roll yeah that is and, the, obs- the obsessiveness not yeah. not the violence and not now the... he does that with killing yeah. huh yeah huh that makes a lot okay. of sense okay okay um oh speaking of valhalla i just couldn't the fact that billy names it valhalla which is where like the righteous dead yeah. who die in battle and vikings are oh, is, they're not like, they're not righteous they're, they just die they just die cinematically in battle that's that's the only prerequisite for valhalla entrance oh okay so it's not righteous damn no you don't have to be you don't yeah you no you don't have to be righteous you just have to be badass okay well <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was an example of his self justification, but regardless, it is certainly self valorization. Yes. Oh yeah. And it also is implying that they're already dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Billy making the Billy's turn to becoming organized gang bank robber was like so. I completely bought it, and had you told me that was going to happen before, which you did by naming him Jigsaw, because like. That's yep. the kind of more along Jigsaw's lines. I would have I would have been skeptical about their ability to sell that to me, but they they really did sell that. I believe yeah. that they in his you know he justifies it as being a way to get even on what was taken from them and how society's treated them badly. And I'm like, or you could like organize and try to get funding for the VA and get mental health care and support your friend Curtis, who deserves better than this. Curtis deserves so much better than so many things. Curtis deserves better than the universe he's stuck in or any of the people he interacts with. Yes. There's this amazing scene where, like, Curtis, they emphasize the difference of, like, Curtis going in to, to fix bodies that other people have broken. And truly, like, yeah. field mm-hmm. medics are the bravest freaking people. Um, and that his d- devotion to doing that is, like, he actually gets, he does get to play that out on the yeah. guy who, because Frank is toxic and is making everything terrible, uh, like, lures him into sh- to shooting and they're like, let's go kill Billy, <laughs> e- um, expedition part yeah. 4.6 or well- what have you. To Just to go back, because I know you brought up Krista and then we went off on another tangent. One of the oh, things yes. that's interesting to me is the parallel between Curtis and Krista. And particularly the fact mm. that their names are so similar. Um, hmm. But because what you have is you have somebody who is genuinely dedicated to fixing broken people. And someone who is obsessed with fixing broken people. And... The person who you see over and over again now over the course of two seasons who, you know, sacrifices so much and gives so much of himself in order to help fix other people. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have this uh, and then you have Krista who believes she's fixing broken people and yet is really just sort of feeding her own obsessions and her own kind of objectification of what they are and one of the things that going back to one of the things i was thinking about when we were talking about billy's face earlier is just like the question of would she have even been as interested in him as a patient and as a person if he hadn't been, you know, explicitly broken in a way that was visible. And I don't know. If he hadn't explicitly gone through a window, even. Yeah. That's, yeah. One of the things that T brought up when we were first watching the series 
was how much it's a study in the ways that different people experience and process and don't process trauma. Yeah, one um, of the things that was interesting, particularly about the window um, story arc um, and Krista, is how much, because this is a story about post-war trauma in a lot of ways, how much it reminded me of Mrs. Dalloway, because that's the recurring thing and and i haven't read mrs dalloway in a million years and i don't remember the soldier's name but there's the recurring thing with the soldier who's come back from the war looking out the window and looking out the window and then you have mrs dalloway look out the window and eventually obviously he 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 goes out the window but i I kept being like, shit, this is Mrs. Dalloway. She's going to end up going out the window. Yeah, no, I think I called that, like, yeah. vi- in the, the first scene where we saw her checking windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is... very. The extent to which she was predictable is weird. Like, you mentioned the calling the Joker Harley thing really early in that, and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's I one of I the things that. that was I that I questioned about this season was how much of it was kind of lined up for us mm-hmm. in ways that mm-hmm. it wasn't in the first season. Like I had no clue where the first season was going at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this one, a lot of it was, you saw all these pieces on the chessboard and you kind of knew where they were going to end up to begin with. I'll tell you one thing I didn't see. And like, it, because it was that much worse than anything I could have conceived of. Billy goes to confront, and, and you probably assumedly kill his abuser and you know that's going to be dark but you're also kind of hoping for at least a moment of being like well like this is some kind of violence that you catharsis. even if it's not catharsis yes this is not something that you want as public policy but it's something you can enjoy as popular culture c- consumption and the fact that his abuser just makes it even worse than i thought the show could have gone i was just like Wow, that's that's even worse. Like his, yeah. like basically his abuser intimating that Billy didn't go to him to kill him, but went to him for sex because he's ugly. Now I was like, this is disgusting and terrible in a way that even I didn't foresee. Thanks, Punisher. It, yeah. crossed, go it crossed what I think of my as brain the, now. the obscure line, which is the point at which tragedy and horror goes Ooh. so far <laughs> past the point of not necessarily potential reality, but fictional plausibility that it becomes really ghoulish humor yeah or at least hard to take seriously and where you can see the impact it's intended to have but you can see it so clearly and they're 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 pointing to the this is traumatic this should upset you so clearly that it it the message has more impact than the actual scene Mm. The other one of the other things that I was, was really over top that I didn't think I was going to be okay with that I ended up being like yeah that works for me it, it, the mask like the second I saw in the trailer the the mat the the jigsaw mask, mask mm-hmm. I was like this is preposterous how could this possibly be a thing in, in a Marvel Netflix show as opposed to I mean like in a comic all the time but um I actually ended up liking it like I obviously as a therapeutic tool that would be presented to him by a doctor. I still don't buy that, but the yeah. way they ended up using it and embracing it as the, um, and the criminal gang. And I, the whole thing where there's a conflict between the skull versus the white mask, right? The Punisher is all about the skull and the Billy has the white mask, which has the fracture on it, but it is still a mask. So it's like a facade that covers his face. Whereas the skull is revealed as what's lies beneath. So the Punisher is being open 
and showing who he is underneath it all by bearing the skull, whereas the mask is Billy trying to still sort of be in denial about who and what he truly is. But it's also him embracing his brokenness. Mm. Because, I mean, the mask is so much... The mask imp- the mask looks like surgical scars or fracture lines, but it's so much more screwed up than his actual face is. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about the Amway plot line, I should say. I keep referring to the... <laughs> Uh, you know, like the bad guys here, right? Are the new yeah. big bad guys introduced this season are some rich Christians who are very powerful yet have never been indicated the particulars of in the real world. Um, who, uh, I mean, it's the the plot of who they are and what they want is, is really teased up very slowly, but whatever. Uh, yeah. But basically, yeah. they are rich Christian conservatives who want to rule the world through making their son become president. And you know, to the extent that i'm always happy to have rich conservatives christians as bad guys i'm i'm pleased by that and uh but they i never quite found it as emotionally gratifying no as i had hoped it would um and i and i hated i hated them and i i hated john pilgrim in fact because like because he was even like when you're even when you're supposed to be feeling compassion for him, I still hated him because yeah. he's abysmal. I'm like, you were a Nazi and now you're a different kind of Nazi. Um, and just because your wife and children are tragic doesn't mean that you're not evil, actually. Yeah, it's and, like, you're, like you're in a terrible situation and also you are a horrific mass murderer. Yes, these are all possible things. These are all possible things. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, uh, sorry. Um, nevertheless, I, I, I wanted them to kind of I don't know. It took me a while to settle into them, but the the conversation that they ended up having near the end, where it's really revealed that ultimately they weren't trying to keep they weren't trying to keep their gay son in the closet because of his career. Because this has been bothering me. I'm like, he, I think he's supposed to be a senator from New York, and I'm like, you're not okay. So you're a closeted gay Republican senator from New York. Like none of this adds up. So let's pretend he's a closeted gay senator from where's Mitch McConnell from? Uh, Tennessee. <laughs> let's, let's pretend he. Let's pretend he's a closeted gay senator from Tennessee, um, so, who just happens to be living in New York because everybody wants to live here. Uh, you know, so it, it does become apparent that ultimately his parents were about protecting themselves and their public image, and they weren't oh, yeah. actually yeah. about protecting him at all. No. And I, 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 like, I had a note higher up on my page saying, like, I'm so pissed that the only gay person in the MCU, other than Geraldine Hogarth, who is also bad. <laughs> is like this completely chicken shit closeted like Republican, you know, guy who exists in a way that cr- creates danger for everyone else around him. But the show did get around to making it clear that he wasn't he wasn't the problem. I mean, he was in yeah. denial about yeah. it, but it was, this wasn't him trying to, I don't know. What, any thoughts about this, I guess, second oh, so canonically many. out so gay many. character of the MCU? Yeah, so I think I, I'm 100% with you on that particular detail. My read on the family was somewhat different, partially because I don't know a ton about Amway, but partially because I spent six years living basically across the highway from the Billy Graham Training Center in Ooh. a county that has that recognizes Billy Graham Day. This is a thing. So weird. Yeah, this is this is this is in Western North Carolina. And also my first internship was um, with an investigative reporter who was putting together a book on Billy Graham and the Graham family's ties to the military industrial complex. So my sense of of this sort of dynastic evangelical thing is is very much yeah. more rooted in that and 
the thing that I found bizarre is that I, I don't think that this was something they developed well enough for people who aren't familiar yeah. with either of those things. Because, like, mm-hmm. I could read that and superimpose a lot of what I know about a very specific brand of very heavily political Armageddon theology and, you know, Franklin Graham's collection of automatic weapons and stuff. But, which, yeah, so that, that's a thing. Franklin Graham totally cr- yep. collects assault rifles and sometimes uses them to cut down trees. Um, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole thing. Um, brief plug, the book in question is Prince of War by Cecil Bothwell. Um, Ooh, thank you. But it's, yeah, but, but I, I can't imagine going into it. And, and obviously you came into it and saw something completely different and specific. And if you didn't have one of those frames of reference going in, like, I don't know what you would make out of this family and uh, these villains. Right. Yeah. So for right. me, like, I just, I felt like, and it's interesting for you to bring up that whole thing about the military industrial complex, Jay, because again, I don't know as much about these sort of things. And so that actually answers a question for me, which for me, I felt like it was like coming completely out of left field and didn't fit in the show. And so it was like, we're, we're watching this story and then there's this other story happening about this guy whose family is being held hostage. Which it didn't and also, fit in the show because they didn't develop it at right, all. Right. And so it, and so now I'm even more frustrated because I feel like it would have been so easy to tie this family to Billy if typically, you know, there's, there's, if there's a, you know, if there's a precedent for tying a family like this to the military industrial complex, it would have been so much easier to actually tie this into what was going on in the main plot. But instead they had these two completely different plots going on and they were pulling us out of Frank's story to go see these other people. Um, and I didn't always quite get it (laughs) and it got really frustrating. Um, I did like, I, I wanted them to develop things like the fact that there was this, you know, senator who whose family was doing horrible things purportedly in his name and that he knew nothing about. Like, that could have been a really interesting story, but they didn't really develop any of it until the very end. And then I was also... Also, that was the part that I felt like it would have made the most sense to pull Karen Karen in on yes. instead of push her out before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was really, there was just so much stuff that felt like it could have fit better and didn't. And that's that was really disappointing to me. I also felt like, and this was, it, it happened with Billy and it happened with the senator's parents. Frank was the one who got to do, like, all the revenge killings. And what it bugged me because I felt like, with particularly with Billy, I felt like they must have focus grouped it and been like, oh, no, exactly half the people want Madani to kill him and exactly half the people want Frank to kill him, so let's have Madani <laughs> kill him and then have Frank kill him. And it just, it, it was a little bit over, it, it was a little bit much for me. Okay, but... That conceit and that double kill did give us the greatest character in this entire show. Okay, go on about your favorite character. (laughs) My favorite character. So Billy, in the last episode, when he is clearly dying, drags himself to a back alley surgeon who wants nothing to do with him, points out that this is not a back alley surgery type injury. At one point, just anguishedly yells, this is so stupid. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he is, he is, I, I relate closely to that man. Um, and then, and then ends up, um, and then Billy insists on staying awake through this and immediately passes out because <laughs> obviously, yeah, that was, um, yeah. and then comes to having, and, and, and this, the surgeon dumps Billy in a trash can, takes his money and splits. And I feel like he, he is the most sensible character in this entire season. <laughs> and they and then comes on the acoustic version of Rooster by a- Alice in Chains and I was just oh, yeah. ecstatic about that music choice like these guys are all my age I'm like I know what all of you listen to mm-hmm. I firmly believe that Billy probably had Rooster in his head as this was happening to him in in truth um so oh man the soundtrack I that is one yeah. one of the good things about this show the soundtrack was on point the entire time Oh my god. When they started the Cat Power cover yeah. of um Wow, it felt a, a Fortunate Son. I didn't know that you could deploy Fortunate Son in ways that were not completely rote and stereotypical and cheapening it. I think they did a great job of deploying Fortunate Son when he's walking through yeah. the uh room where all the women had gotten shot, which he thought he was guilty of. I mean I give credit to that. Oh, man. And then they played L.A. Guns, which made me very happy just because it meant that they played L.A. Guns, even if it was <laughs> probably because they didn't want to spend the money on Motley Crue. And I understand how that can be. Um, yeah, I think the show, I actually have a note, like the show acknowledges the importance of music. Uh, I mean, look, the soundtrack of Luke Cage season one is the best soundtrack of anything in like 10 years, maybe not, if not more. Uh, I'm I stand for that hardcore. Oh yeah, this show was not in that class, no. but the show's soundtrack was good, which was um, an interesting and um, not something. And I and I feel like a lot of the other Marvel Netflix shows had just avoided music in a way that seemed ch- cheap and yeah. uh, disappointing. Mm-hmm. So it's not a Marvel Netflix show, but for soundtracks on Marvel shows, Legion. Oh yeah, Legion oh, yeah. is amazing. Oh my god. Yeah, Legion I uses music had so one. Well. Except they, they, there, there was one sound cue. There was one, sorry, one music cue that I was like, "Oh, this is such a basic ass choice." I'm blanking. Folks can go back and listen to my coverage of Legion season one or possibly two, but I think it was season one. If you're so interested, I, I, and I apologize. It's just because I'm a big Pink Floyd snob, and people oh. should probably just. But no, was it was it the entire it. decision to name Sid Barrett Sid Barrett? Because I was yelling about that for the entirety <laughs> yeah. of season one. I, I mean, and that I yes, am, I am with that you on yes. Pink Floyd snobhood. Yes, yes, exactly. So we're we're, we're in line here. Um, but regardless, yes, no, that show, that show did do some really excellent music cues. I mean, they used a really obscure Rolling Stones song that, like, you is not even, not, that's not why it's good, but it has this beautiful room tone of tinkling notes for the beginning of We Love You. Okay, enough. We're going to, yeah. Listen, you can listen to our episodes that we did about Legion and another time. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, Krista Dumont, our doctor, our Harley Quinn. Um, our, our, a new season villain, um, really love the actress's performance. Uh, one of the things that I thought was amazing was the art direction around her in her apartment. Everything in there is like a new England, like China blue, everything. It is like the most, she's the most color theme person I've seen for whom the color was not black basically. Um, and I, and it's this sort of cool color that you're like trying to have a sort of stayed and like removedness from from the people you're trying to to deal with it's like this very cold color sort of an elitist looking color when billy stays over um she goes to bed periwinkle blue and wakes up and everything is lavender purple 
So Ooh. is that? Oh, that's interesting. Is that, I didn't notice yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Her outfit. It was like for like the first time is like off of her standard color scheme, and I'm like, is that the red of blood coming in? Oh yeah. Is it the purple of having had good sex? I don't know, but it's significant. Um, I am. I now I want to go back and see how they see how and whether they color coded that with Madani in season one, because Madani was yeah. was, was really oh. red coded and was was red coded from the beginning in one, but I oh god I don't know and that's. Now I'm really curious. I did appreciate the wardrobe rating that Amy does of Madani's closet, where we confirm that she does have the same exact, really beautifully yes. made blouse, like five different copies of it. I'm like, yes. yeah, that yes. sounds right. Yeah. Um, and oh, and you know who else I loved was the young black woman lab assistant who worshipped Madani. Yeah. I like needed that moment, and that might oh, have been the only thing that happens in that is the only thing that happened in the whole show that passed the uh, Bechdel test, I think, actually. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was right. Um, but the young woman lab assistant basically saying like how important Madani is to her, and now she's like, she like stands her, you know, and I, that's really mm-hmm. beautiful and yeah. realistic. Like you, yeah. I, I mean, a very nice touch. But poor Madani, season one Madani, it, it was it was so much better in every way of her life than season two Madani is, which is completely believable, right? She's just been sucked into the hell that is being friend and family to Frank Castle, so. I see how that can be. Well, season two, Madani is someone who's just sort of living in this state of continual numb shock and stuck in kind of a perpetual replay of the stuff she's been through. And season season one, Madani isn't that completely locked in yet. Like she's still she still has sort of the momentum of anger and trying mm-hmm. to trying to write something. Um, man, season season two, Madani was was hard to watch, but I think yes. one of the most well-developed characters in the season the thing that bugged me about her is that she was you know she early on like it's clear that she's she's comp she compromises everything she stands for and everything that's important around billy and just the immediate fear response he evokes for her the fact that Mm -hmm. she continues that that her happy ending involves continuing to compromise and have compromised those things is infuriating I don't know if we're supposed to take it as a happy ending. Like, I, I don't know. Like, that's not me. That's not me saying you're wrong. That's like, literally, I don't know. Obviously, I'm like, oh, boy, CIA. That's good. You know, we already know who runs the CIA. It's that totally shitty woman. Um, and we also already know who we already know. I mean, but like, it's DHS beforehand. It's not like I, I love when Amy asks her if she's a, a, a hitman for DHS. Because I was like, yes. let's talk about that yeah. more. Um, but uh I don't know if we're how we're supposed to feel about her being in the CIA. She certainly does seem renewed and refreshed, but mm. you know, it's interesting to think about that sort of in the terms of the sort of the thing that comes up, uh, and even more so toward the end of the show, but comes up about you know people being you know people feeling like they're set on a specific path that they can't get out of. And, you know, whether that for her, like, is that her making a choice to change her path or is that her being stuck in a path she can't get out of? Right. Right. The whole theme of like whirlwind and cycle of vengeance is very. Yes. Very Old Testament. I, I thought a lot, some of the Bible quoting really showed that the people who were doing the Bible quoting didn't understand the Bible very well, which is fine as a character note because these are bad people. Yeah. Um, 
but I, but it is also, I, I, but I always wonder if that's like intentional or not, whatever, that's fine. Um, well, I think that it's, so one of the things that's interesting though about that is that the like evangelical Bible quoting is not Bible quoting that actually interprets the Bible correctly. Um, so I also don't know how much of that is, this is, you know, this is, appropriate to the ways that people like this deliberately misinterpret the Bible. Yeah, it definitely makes sense to, to take it that way. And especially, like, if Amy calling them on his shit. Yeah. I, I'm i going to be real. Like, I feel like we've talked about a lot of things that we thought were interesting or not necessarily that we thought were interesting about about the show. So I'm not I'm not leaving like this conversation being like fuck that shit. So I guess <laughs> I don't know. I I am I want I want to hear how like like wh- why is it that we feel more like this season gave Frank authorship of as the decider of who commits the violence. I mean, I guess you guys did sort of hit on that more. I maybe I'm just still feeling in, ambiguous about it. But I, it, it, it very clear, like, says, in it, like, like, everyone is a hostage to someone in this, especially in the last couple yeah. episodes. Everybody is a hostage to someone and that they're all, you know, being abused and, and played out in that way. And they just are trying to come to a point of understanding where they can free each other rather than continuing. Man. So I guess I'm glad he didn't kill that Nazi. Maybe I think that you're time. reading that more generously than I am. The scene okay. where his his decision not to kill the Nazi made me think of nothing more than, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go in a deep you know deep nerd dive in a different direction. Talk about uh, mm-hmm. Chris, Christopher Eccleston's season of Doctor Who. Do it. And the episode where um I it, it's it's the one where they're it's one of the it's the one where they're in Wales it's it, Boomtown. Um, where there's there's the mayor who's got the plan that's gonna destroy the town and let her go off into space, and where she's talking, she's 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 at dinner with the doctor and talking about how she decided not to kill someone that day, and that means she's changed. And he gives the speech that's like, yeah, you know, you tell yourself that, and you commit these atrocities, but then once in a while, because they reminded you of someone or because they were kind or because they begged right or because you were just in a whimsical mood you spare someone and that's how you keep convincing yourself that you're not a monster even while using that to feed your ongoing monstrousness and that Mm. felt like that that felt like frank's move there Hmm. he, you know, he's got a soft spot for kids, and yeah, his he probably made somewhat the right choice not killing the guy. But on the other hand, his fundamental ethos hasn't changed at all. No, and that's why I screamed really angrily at the very end of the season. Oh God! But, I mean, people have memeified this righteously. Like it ends with straight out of classic, the most classic Punisher comic thing in the history of mankind. Like Punisher is like waiting for. She's like staged some sort of showdown between two street gangs, not powerful people, just street gangs to gun them down in a warehouse because he's smarter than them. 
And he like guns them down and screams. And so I screamed. And then it said, in memory of Stan Lee, and I screamed yes, more. Yes, yes. That was, that was the point that was like the ultimate amazing capstone of the series, going straight from that to in memory of Stan Lee. I wish that, that Stan was Lee such had been a able thing. to comment on this. I mean, he wouldn't have commented on it anyway because he never says anything negative. But like, God, I would love to know what he would make of that. God. Yeah, no, it was... <sighs> so I think that was part of part of what frustrated me about this season um, in contrast to the first season was how much of the... I mean, we've talked about it a lot. Like, it's... This one didn't seem to feel the need to really try to comment on what it was portraying. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. well, I mean, we haven't even talked about, like, the lack of micro. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank I, you. So the I lack think of the that, only living Jewish character in the MCU. Yeah, mm-hmm. But I think... Sorry, continue. Micro... The conversations between Micro and Frank in the first season grounded a lot of what Frank was doing in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And... Without that, you know, that was, like, a lot of that was what was, what allowed the show the first season to, to kind of step back and say, okay, but we've got to look at this thing that's happening. We've got to, you know, we've got to actually think about what Frank's doing. You had Micro standing there talking about what Frank was doing. Um, And without that, you lost, losing that dynamic um really changed the way we're perceiving all of that because we don't mm-hmm. have we don't have that character and obviously you've got Curtis who from a narrative perspective is a grounding influence on Frank but Curtis doesn't talk to Frank that way and mm-hmm. so you you I really missed that from this season and I do think that that not having an element of the show that directly challenged Frank in a like non-inimical way um, really, you know, was a big part of what lacked in this season. Yeah. Well, and Madani <laughs> challenged Frank in season one in really good yeah. ways too. And here she, and just, it's sh- she just lost that completely. And I just think it's a shame that they don't use uh, Brett Mahoney differently to that effect. Yeah. Like, that potential is there, and he always just kind of comes in like a wet blanket. Like there, there's this a moment near the end where when when he decide, when Mahoney decides he's gonna like handcuff Frank in the back of the ambulance, and he's like, "You're not the only people who get to do something crazy to Madani," which is a great line. And he's like calling out, "Like, <laughs> yeah, everyone else gets to do crazy shit, but I'm like the black guy, and I can't just do that." Apparently, he's, he's um, and the, he can't. He's the John Doggett of the MCU. <laughs> he's like the competent. He's he's the competent real adult character who's stuck in this bizarre fantasy universe where all of his competence is functionally useless and he's he's a good dude and he doesn't deserve to be stuck in this show yeah and so he's kind of reduced to these i keep thinking about like that the last scene with him and curtis and madani over billy's body and him just being like i'm not used to bending the law like you guys do and also sure whatever you say (laughs) just yeah just whatever you say, because and I just and wa- I just want to go home. Yeah, with my and, severe concussion. And that's un- oh yeah, like after he falls in an ambulance in the front of the ambulance off a bridge, somehow survives and then shows up to check out Billy's body. 
is unconscious for a protracted period, which, again, is a pretty good indicator of relative severity. But yeah, yeah, you know, but I feel like characters like that end up getting, like, reduced to these sort of, like, peanut galleries in these shows because they can't, they're, because they can't function in these worlds without severely affecting the story. Well, we had, we had also the, the larger issue here that we had two significant black characters in this show and both of them were basically ongoing punching bags for the plot and the characters. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They basically just, and the difference is that I feel like Curtis still comes off as being like cool and Mahoney does not come off as cool except for when he calls you out for not letting him think he's cool. I think he's cool. I think he's cool, but I I also think Cyclops is cool. So I feel like my sense of cool is largely, largely based around probably organizes things really carefully. (laughs) No, I think this was really interesting and actually getting to talk through some of what didn't work about the show may, you know, actually made me understand what I didn't like about it more, which is Mm -hmm. great. Yes. That was very helpful for me as well, because I really was struggling with, like, from almost moment to moment, this is this is great, this is awful. I mean, yeah, the last the last episode, I have the this is great reaction to the excellently shot uh, hotel gun battle oh, yeah. between the two hotel rooms, and then busting through the freaking wall was freaking amazing. That was really, really good. And I also really enjoyed Amy with the shotgun. I, yeah. I yeah. always enjoy Amy with the shotgun. Uh, and then there was the end. So it's like, yeah, I'm all over the place. Um, and this has really helped clarify what what um, has been a disappointment in terms of the show's handling of difficult questions. I would like to briefly abuse this platform to um, drive home what I think is most one of the most one of my most enduring Punisher takeaways, which is that it is a sin and a crime that um, there are not more people who collectively ship micro sarah and frank yes i realize that's not season two relevant but like but it could have been seriously it could have been been. if more people shipped them then frank wouldn't have ended up in the situation like i feel like micro and sarah should have like a frank flap cut in the door and every (laughs) once in a while he comes in really late at night covered in blood and they're like oh for fuck's sake and pour him and 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 they sit around and drink rosé and you know engage in adult activities of various sorts and then in the morning sometimes he makes breakfast for everyone and leaves and sometimes he makes breakfast for everyone and sticks around look i i absolutely miss our heroic stand-in for edward snowden who's also the only significant jewish character in the mcu <laughs> and um yes i mean this and i i actually would say that the, the lack of i'm happy for for Lieberman that he didn't show up in this season yeah, because it yeah. would have just made his life shittier. Oh, yeah. But I was sadder for me. His absence yeah. made it sadder for me. He is in the he is he does come from the comics if that helps. I haven't read many Punisher comics, but I, I have I have friends who are serious about 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 Punisher comics yeah. and characters who assure me that Micro is pretty great in the comics. Yeah. It's not the same Micro though. I mean no, I am really not, not I am it's not the same it's not the same Micro. I mean I am not a big Punisher person. I am married to one and um oh. As part of my preparation for this episode, I decided I was going to go and I was going to read the classic Punisher issue where he steals the jet ski, i.e. the greatest <gasps> comics cover of all time. Oh, yes. The Jim Lee. Watch oh, out. The, the, one that I, the, one that I read, the one I read it as a Mark Trail cover? Yes. Oh, I need to see this. But yes, the, the famous image of the, the Punisher saying, you, oh no, you just loaned the pun- rented the Punisher a jet ski. Kiss that baby Goodbye. goodbye. Yeah. I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to read that. And not only am I going to read that, I'm going to read the issues of Punisher leading up to that issue so I understand the context in which this happens. 
And let me tell you, I couldn't read any of it. It was really bad. I could not force Aww. myself to read the earlier issues. I just stopped, even though they included micro. And then I tried to just at least read that one issue because it's a gorgeous cover as well mm -hmm. as hilarious. I just couldn't do it. Couldn't so do it. I do highly recommend, and unfortunately, like, I... I, I reread I reread his his original appearances in the Amazing Spider-Man for this, but I didn't get around. Oh, yeah, to it. totally. I, I didn't get around to rereading the one I was talking about before, so I don't remember enough about it um, to give credits or anything. But it, there is the issue of Marvel previews or Marvel presents or whatever that's the first um, Punisher story that stars the Punisher. Um, is very mm -hmm. good, and I would recommend reading that. Um, you can read the his first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man as well, because um, it does set up a lot of who the Punisher becomes, um, and also Spider-Man just really, really trying to be friends with this guy with the skull on his shirt. God, I love um, that. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. No, I, I, I like Punisher when he exists in dialogue with superheroes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I Mo think mostly, mostly Daredevil for me, but yeah. I feel like Punisher, Daredevil, Spider-Man collectively are one of one of the best perspective balances you can get from a team up. But I was going to say I have not I haven't read this but again folks whom I trust implicitly on it highly recommend uh, Greg Rucka's run on Punisher War Journal. And and not I've been surprised. told that if you like <laughs> if you liked Punisher season 1 and the things that it examines and deconstructs that's a good place to go in the comics. Um to my guests uh, where can our listeners uh, follow you or work on the internet? Jay take it away. All right, so I am most visible, and if, if, if you like the dulcet tones of my voice um, and its current absolute unpredictability, you can hear me talking about X-Men continuity, creative history, and social context at explainthexmen.com. Um, that's explain without an E at the start. Uh, it's also explain the X-Men on Twitter and Tumblr. Personally, I am not lasers on Twitter and postcards from space on Tumblr and fairly easily Googleable either as Jay Edidin or in my work prior to late 2015 as Rachel Edidin. And I would just add that the if folks are looking to get into Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men podcast, the episode I tell people to check out first is the one about Secret Wars, because it not only does it work pretty well as a standalone, it is the funniest thing I've ever listened to. I like hurt myself laughing so hard i gave myself stomach cramps so okay. go listen to the secret wars episode of jan miles explain the explain the x-men did i tell you what i and wanted to call that one miles detail. vetoed it i wanted to call it the passion of jim shooter Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, uh, and T, what of you? Yeah, so I am T-Berry Blue pretty much on every social media. That's tea like the drink, berry like the fruit, blue like the color. Fabulous. And of course, I am on Twitter all the damn time, Ilana underscore Brooklyn. And Graphic Policy is always here for you uh, every day at graphicpolicy.com for comics news, reviews, and keep it geeky.